it, let me encourage you to uh, take a Bible in one hand and uh, the handout that was uh, put inside uh, your service orders in the other hand if you like following um, where we're going uh, in the sermon. Uh, Genesis chapter 39 is the chapter that we're looking at, chapters 39 and 40, page 43 is the page number. As we come to the Bible, let me pray for us that we'd understand it. Heavenly Father, we've just been singing that you've seen the end from the beginning. We saw that last week in this amazing story uh, in Genesis. And uh, it's because of that that we want to hear you speaking to us, because you do know what is happening in the world, uh, and we don't. Because you know what is happening in our lives, sometimes where we don't. And so we pray you'd speak to us and encourage us through your words this evening. In Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, It came as quite a shock as a new Christian to discover that living a faithful Christian life made life a lot harder sometimes. Those are the words of someone I know as he explained how uh, doing the right thing at work resulted in the company that he worked for telling him that his services would no longer be needed. That experience as a new Christian left him wondering if God was really with him, if God was really in control, certainly if God really loved him. And you see, that sort of thing is going to happen to all of us sooner or later if we seek to live a faithful Christian life. Doing the right thing will make life harder, not easier. It's not difficult to imagine the scenario. Um, Students, you're looking for a job. You get a job interview. It's the perfect job. And in the current climate, you're thinking you didn't even think you'd get an interview. And the interview is going very well. And then the interviewer asks you about an entry on your CV about you being part of the Christian Union at university and how you attended Christchurch Forward. And he looks you in the eye and he says, don't tell me you're one of those born-again Christians. And as soon as you say you are, the whole tone of the interview changes. Needless to say, you don't get offered the job. I mean, he won't say that's not the reason you didn't get the job, but you don't get the job. And you just think, I bet it was that moment. And for those in the workplace, you're asked to do something that you think is ethically dubious. Politely but firmly, you refuse to do it. And from that moment on, you're overlooked for promotion. That certainly happened to me. Or as it's happening all over the Muslim world, you say you're a Christian and your family disown you, you're ostracised by society, or worse. I think of the situation in Pakistan that we heard about at church family prayer on Wednesday evening. Christians in the Swat Valley have been forbidden by the government to live in the tented refugee camps. They fear for their lives and some have been murdered just because they stand up and say, I follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that is the first and big point from Genesis 39 and 40 and it's on the the, uh, handout there. Suffering as a result of righteous living is the normal Christian life And God is with us in that. That's the big thrust of Genesis 39 and 40. And as we join chapter 39, you see, things are not going well for Joseph. Humanly speaking, his life was a disaster. It's a far cry from the life he enjoyed at the beginning of chapter 37. You'll remember it if you were here last week. Back then, right at the beginning of chapter 37, he was so cocksure of himself. The favourite son of his father. God had spoken to him through dreams. He knew he was the man. God had told him that against all the cultural norms of the day, 
his whole family would one day bow down and serve him. He blurted out his dreams to his brothers and to his dad and from that moment on things started to go pear-shaped. His brothers sold him to Midianite merchants who in in turn sold him to slavery in Egypt and that's where we left him at the end of chapter 37, verse 36 and that's where we pick up the story again in chapter 39, verse 1. Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him from from the Ishmaelites who'd taken him there. Joseph then is a slave in Potiphar's household. And the next two chapters, chapters 39 and 40, are a series of events that leave Joseph at rock bottom. When you think he's fallen about as far as anyone can fall, he falls further. From slavery to Potiphar, he ends up in prison in chapter 39 and verse 20. And by the end of chapter 40, even though he helped one of the prisoners, the chief cupbearer to the king, to be released from prison, by the end of the chapter, we read chapter 40, verse 23, look at these words, the chief cupbearer, the one who got free from prison, however, did not remember Joseph, he forgot him. Things seem really desperate for Joseph, a slave, a prisoner, a forgotten man. Poor, poor Joseph, what are you going to do? Things ain't good for you. Hey, what are you going to do? as the song goes, in case you wondered. His life is a disaster. But here's the big thing about these two chapters. In chapters 39 and 40, Joseph has been a model believer. He doesn't deserve any of this to have happened to him. The reason he is in this state is because, wait for it, because he's been faithful to God. In chapter 37, you could argue that he deserved what he got, but not here. These are chapters about a man who has done nothing wrong, who's remained faithful to God, yet nothing has gone right for him. Just see how that pans out in chapter 39 and 40. Joseph worked so hard in slavery, he was so honest in Potiphar's house, that we read in verse 4, Joseph found favour in Potiphar's eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. The same thing in verse 6. He, Potiphar, left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he didn't concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Joseph was an exemplary slave. Potiphar came to trust him with everything. When Potiphar's wife wanted to have sex with with him, look how he answered. Chapter 39, verse 9. He says, No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? He's the model believer. Joseph refused to cheat on his master. Even Even as Potiphar's wife threw himself at her, he is the model believer. Yet, of course, it is his refusal to sleep with Potiphar's wife that led him to be thrown into jail. He did the right thing and it ended up a foreigner in an alien land, banged up in prison with a criminal record and no right of appeal. And then in jail, when you might expect him to moan and groan about the injustice of it all, that's certainly what I'd have done, he then lived such an impressive life in in jail that the prison warder responded really well towards him. Look at chapter 39 and verse 23. 
The warder paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in everything he did. In these chapters, Joseph lives a remarkably impressive life. Even in prison, he takes his opportunities to witness to God. So as uh, two prisoners had dreams and wanted someone to interpret them, they go to Joseph, and what are Joseph's very first words to them? Look at halfway through verse 8 of chapter 40. Chapter 40, verse 8, Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? See his first reaction in jail. He points to God. A model believer, but it all ends in him being imprisoned and forgotten, as we've seen in chapter 40, verse 23. And so he might well have believed that God had abandoned him. I was speaking to somebody recently who's finding life really tough right now. She has been praying and praying for circumstances to change for quite some time. But things are not getting any better. If anything, they're getting worse. And now she's doubting that God is with her, wondering if God is even there. That's what happens, doesn't it, when things go bad? Joseph might well have believed that God had abandoned him. But look now what we are told throughout this section. Again, right to the the front, chapter 39, verse 2. See what it says? Chapter 39, verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. Look at verse 3. When his masters saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favour in his eyes. Uh, Flip on to verse 20 over the page. Joseph, um, Joseph, uh, halfway through. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. Verse 23. The warder paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph. It's the constant refrain throughout this chapter. The Lord was with Joseph. And we get the same message in chapter 40. In chapter 40, verse 8, Joseph rightly says to Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and to his baker, God alone gives interpretation to dreams. And then we see Joseph is able to interpret the dreams. And in chapter 40, verse 22, things turned out just as Joseph had said they would. And that tells us that God was with Joseph because otherwise he wouldn't have been able to interpret the dreams because God alone interprets dreams and he got them right. Now do you see the point? Whatever it looks like, despite what it looks like throughout these chapters, we are told the Lord is with Joseph. Despite the fact that things are going from bad to worse, we know, because we read the text, the Lord has not abandoned Joseph. That's what we saw last week. God is bringing about his great purposes for the salvation of the world. No need to turn to it, but do you remember chapter 50 and verse 20? Speaking to his brothers, Joseph, looking back on his life, says, says to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Everything in the Bible tells us that God is with Joseph, but everything in the circumstances tempts us to believe that God has abandoned him. Because whenever Joseph does what is right, everything goes horribly wrong. And this is brilliant for us because this is a great paradigm for the Christian life. Righteous living, living right before our God, will result in suffering. But when suffering comes, it does not mean that God has abandoned us. 
And you and I know that's the case, not just from the Joseph story, but because it's right through the Bible and supremely because hundreds of years later, this happened to another one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Listen to how Isaiah prophesies about Jesus. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3. There's no need to turn it up. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with sufferings. We considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. You see, he he was struck down. He was in a terrible strait. We thought he was smitten by God. God had abandoned him. But what does Isaiah go on to say? Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper his hand. The Lord's with him. And we see exactly the same in 1 Peter. Uh, keep your uh, finger or, or something in, in, one, in, in uh, Genesis chapter 39 and come with me to 1 Peter for a moment. 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, I'll find you a page numbered right now. Uh, page 1219. You see, you begin to know if you're handling these Old Testament texts correctly. If you see what you're saying from them is right through the Bible. Uh, we saw it last week, we're seeing the same here. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. Look what it says of Jesus. Jesus, he committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth, And they hurled insults at him, but he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Innocent suffering was the way of Christ. Had God abandoned Christ? No. This is the way of God's salvation. And it is the pattern for all believers. That's actually why Peter writes this section. Just look back to chapter 2, verse 19. It is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he's conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. Listen to this. To this you were called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And what is the example that we follow? The way of suffering innocently. To this you were called to follow Christ is to follow in his footsteps. So to follow Christ is to endure unjust suffering. To suffer when we live a righteous life. But when that happens we will invariably be tempted to believe that God has abandoned us. And that is exactly the situation in 1 Peter where these people just because they were Christian were suffering because they were Christian. And so look how Peter writes to them over the page, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. See what he has to say to them, 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 12. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. This is the normal Christian life. Think back to Joseph. This is the normal Christian life. Suffering for doing right is the pattern of the Christian life. Verse 12, dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange will happen to you, nothing strange happened to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. When I suffer, does it mean that God has abandoned me, that he's left me? No, quite the opposite, verse 14. God is with you, the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. 
Now, I hope that's a massive encouragement for those of you who are suffering because you are doing the right thing. When you think God has abandoned, you know he hasn't. God bless you for doing the right thing and being prepared to stand up and suffer for it. Now, just think what a difference it would make if we actually believed this. Let me tell you, it would make a significantly big difference to me. It would reduce the amount of pastoral conversations I had with distressed Christians if we believed this. When things are tough, people often conclude that God has abandoned them or that he's not in control or that he doesn't love them. And of course, it is not helped at all by some teaching that has become very popular in highly successful churches in Britain at the moment. In some churches, the great refrain is this, God wants to bless you. Well, that is true, except this is what they mean, which isn't true. By that they mean God wants to give you a job, give you money, give you good health, make everything go well for you. And they will make those promises for you. But listen, the events of Genesis 39 and 40 and right through the Bible and supremely the Lord Jesus himself tell us the pattern for Christian living is that we will suffer for living a righteous life. But we we are told when we do suffer for living a righteous life, God is with us. That's the first point then. Suffering as a result of righteous living is the normal Christian life and God is with us. But before we turn back to Genesis 39 and 40, look with me at 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 1. Verse 1 and 2, because here we see our second point on the handout. The second point, suffering as a result of righteous living helps us overcome sin and to live for God's will. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, Peter writes, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Now do you see what Peter says here? He says Christ suffered for doing good. We've already seen that that's his argument. He said we should be ready for that too. Since therefore Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude. Be ready to suffer even physically for doing good. And he goes on to say in verse 1, if you do that you will overcome sin. Now that's what we're going to see in Joseph. Once you have suffered for the Lord, you're more ready to live the rest of your life for him uncompromised by sin. See, end of verse 1, when you've suffered in your body, you're done with sin. Verse 2, as a result, you no longer live the rest of your earthly life for evil human desires. Let me try and put this in a sort of more uh, concrete way. I I think of a man I know in his 20s, as a new Christian, his boss told him to sack someone who really shouldn't have been sacked. In the past, he'd done it without questioning his boss, but he'd just become a Christian, and now he wouldn't do it. And that was a huge step for him. His boss actually said to him, you've done this before, no, I won't do it anymore. So he stood up to his boss, and he did the right thing, and it was very tough for him, and it seriously affected his career prospects. But now, some years later, ask him about it, and he'd tell you that he's pleased he did it. And he'll tell you that having done the right thing, it was easier for him to do the right thing the next time because now, verse 2, he does not live his life for human desires, not in those areas anyway. He's no longer driven by the need for the approval of his boss. 
He's no longer desperate for a desire for promotion. That doesn't have a hold over him anymore because he made the costly decision against those things and for Christ. See, the fact is, every time you make a decision not to sin, it is easier not to sin the next time. Now, that's what we're going to see with Joseph in Genesis 39 and 40. As we sort of head back then to Joseph, just stop off with me to Psalm 105 and we'll see how much Joseph suffered. Psalm 105 and it's page 608. It's a long journey back, you see, from 1 Peter to Genesis, so we'll have a little stop on the way. I always like a little stop, stretch my legs. Here's a chance to stretch your legs in Psalm 105, which you probably never thought I'd ever say. I I didn't plan to say it either, never thought I'd say it. Psalm 105, verse 16. Just look what, this is a commentary on the Joseph story. Look at verse 16. God called down famine on the land and destroyed all their supplies of food and he sent a man before them, Joseph, sold as a slave. Look at this. They bruised his feet with shackles His neck was put in irons. Do you see how much he suffered physically? And then look at verse 19. Till what he foretold, what God foretold came to pass, till the word of the Lord proved him true. Or as the uh, ESV puts it, until the word of the Lord tested Joseph. You see what these verses tell us? They tell us Joseph really suffered physically. Irons around his feet and around his neck. He suffered for living a right life and through it his faith was tested and proved genuine. Resisting sin, although resulting in suffering, resisting sin made him the man he was. A man who, as Peter says, was done with sin in his body. A man who now lived for God's will and that was going to be so significant in when Joseph becomes very powerful in the future. These incidents then were the making of Joseph because, point two, suffering as a result of righteous living helps us overcome sin and to live for God's will. Now turn back with me to Genesis 39 and 40 uh, where we'll end this evening. And here see how Joseph resisted sin. See how his righteous living was so significant that make him the man that he's going to be. There are three temptations here. The temptations of power, sex and despair. The first one, power. It's very easy to miss this temptation in in Genesis 39 because we only go straight to the sex sex temptation, which is huge, but power is big here as well. You see, Joseph was a slave in Potiphar's house and twice we're told that Potiphar was the captain of the guard. You can see it in chapter 37, verse 36. You can see it in chapter 39, verse 1. The captain of the guard is kind of the commander-in-chief, if you like. Potiphar, then, was one of the most powerful men in the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. Now, Joseph, then, had come right into the centre of power. And as we see the story unfold, there are two examples of how to use power. One bad and one right. And the bad one is Potiphar's wife. Look at verse 7. Of, uh, sorry, chapter 39, verse 7. Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. She's about as subtle as a brick. In fact, she's about as forceful as a brick. 
In the original, this isn't an invitation. This isn't come to bed with me. It's actually a command. There are just two words in the original. What she actually says is something like this. Sex now. See, it's about power. It's about Potiphar's wife using her power because in her world she is very powerful and she always gets what she wants and she wants Joseph. Having power and influence over others is a very dangerous thing. Potiphar's wife misuses that power. But now look at Joseph. He too had power. Again, back to verse 4 of chapter 39. 39 verse 4. Joseph found favour in the eyes uh, in Potiphar's eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household. He entrusted to his care everything he owned. Remember, Potiphar's this hugely powerful man. Now Joseph is in charge of everything that Potiphar owns. So Joseph has the power over the household of one of the most powerful men in the whole world. But look how Joseph uses his power. He uses it to bless. Verse 5, from the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. Here then is just a little outworking of the promise that we saw last week, the promise to Abraham. Remember that threefold promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12? There's no need to turn to it. That God was going to give um, through Abraham, Abraham's descendant, a numerically great nation. They were going to be taken to the promised land and he was going to bless all nations through one of Abraham's offspring. Here is a glimpse of God fulfilling the promise to bless the nations through one of Abraham's offspring. Joseph is one of Abraham's offspring. And crucially in these moments, Joseph proves that he will not misuse power. See, once you've overcome sin, it's easier to overcome sin the next time. And that is going to be so important when Joseph becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt. See Psalm 105. This tests Joseph's faith. After this, there is no doubt that Joseph can be trusted with power. It seems to me, speaking to a group of people like you here in Forward, many of you have positions of great power and huge influence. This asks, how are you using that power? It asks, are you using it to bless? Are you using it in line with the promises to Abraham? Where God promised to bring a numerically great people into the promised land, into eternity and the new creation, to enjoy the blessing of knowing God through Jesus Christ. That's what God gives power for. Yet strangely, I hear some Christians telling me that they can't invite those under them at work to guest events because that would be an abuse of their authority. No, no, no. That is exactly the right use of the authority God has given you. Use power to bless, even if it results in suffering for yourself. Joseph overcame the temptation of power then. He used it for blessing for others. Secondly, Joseph overcame the temptation of sex. Now look, you don't need me to tell you that this is a huge temptation in society today. We heard it uh, earlier uh, from James talking about the uh, seminar that's on next week. It is a huge temptation and it is a huge temptation that perpetually sees Christians fall. When I was in London working at All Souls Langham Place, I had Christians come into my study and talk to me about sexual sin, every kind of sexual sin except bestiality, that is sex with an animal. That was the only one that somebody did not come and tell me about. 
So I had people come and tell me about fornication, that is sex outside marriage, about adultery, about paedophilia, about homosexual sin, and about sleeping with a prostitute. And all these men were Christian men. They all could give you a testimony of how they became a Christian. They would all probably call themselves born-again Christians. They knew that kind of language. They were all involved in Bible study groups. They were men who were fully involved in the life of the church. Now, is that shocking or not? It's shocking to me because I reckon for every man that comes and tells the pastor about that, there are another bunch out there who are not confessing. You probably won't be surprised to hear that the most prolific problem of the lot in the sexual arena is internet pornography. I have spoken with so many Christian men who are struggling with this that I can't remember how many there are now. Joseph now was tempted then sexually, but he overcame. And uh, that is most impressive when you remember who Joseph was. Look at chapter 39 and verse 6 again. Uh, Right at the end of verse 6. Joseph was well built and handsome. Chapter 39, verse 6, he was well built and handsome. He had a six-pack, rippling muscles, a beautifully bronzed body, and he was a good-looking lad too, just like me. uh, Yeah, why are you laughing? In Genesis 37, we read that he was 17 years old. Not a bit like me. But chapter 39, by chapter 39, I don't know how many years had passed, but I guess not many, and so here is a handsome, well-built man in his late teenage years or early 20s. And this temptation came to Joseph at the time when he was a hot-blooded bag of testosterone at the height of his sexual prime, and yet he stood firm. Now, look, I'm a man. I don't know, ladies, whether you have to cope with these things. I'm sure you do. But let me say, men, at least, listen in at this point uh, so that we too can overcome this problem. Notice, firstly, the nature of sexual temptation. It is unpredictable. It can come to us quite out of the blue. Chapter 39 and verse 7. After a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. It's out of the blue, isn't it? It came from nowhere. Now, men, you know that happens to you. You're surfing the net quite legitimately and out of nowhere there's a link that is uh, really most unhelpful and quite in your face or up pops an email screaming, Sex, now! Sexual temptation is really often unpredictable, so we've got to be ready for it. Secondly, notice, it's persistent, verse 10. She spoke to Joseph day after day. It's not difficult, is it, to imagine Potiphar's wife one day dressed in an unnecessarily low-cut dress, leaning over Joseph while he's at the the desk doing the accounts, whispering in his ear. On another day, coming out of the bathroom in a bathrobe, asking Joseph to help her with the shower curtain and making suggestive remarks. On another day, stepping from the pool in her swimsuit, putting her arm around Joseph and telling telling him that she was feeling hot. And it happened day after day. Sexual temptation is often persistent. You can say no on one day and it comes back the next and the next and the next until it wears you down. And third, notice that sexual temptation is opportunistic. Verse 11. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. So he was just doing his job. 
And you see how she takes advantage of the situation. No one else is around. You're working late at night and there's no one else in the office. Uh, You're away on a business trip. You feel lonely in the hotel. You're having a rough time in your marriage and suddenly there's someone who's showing interest in you. See the nature of sexual temptation? Unpredictable, persistent, opportunistic. More positively, let's look at the way to overcome sexual temptation. Let's learn from Joseph. Firstly, he calls sin, sin, verse 9. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? I love that. Joseph calls a spade a spade. I reckon he was a Yorkshireman, really. He just says it straight, doesn't he? He calls sin great wickedness. We are so often tempted to call it something else. Oh, it will do me good. It will release some pressure, some tension. To persuade ourselves that these pictures, on well, they're on the internet anyway. It won't do anyone any harm. Or to call it love. I think of a minister who... uh, fell sexually with someone in his church. After the sorry affair, he spent time with a friend helping him through the mess that he'd made of his life. His friend told him how wicked it was. He said, you've got to, he said this, you've got to call it sin. It's wicked. And the man said, because he was a Bible-believing Christian, he said, I've always believed that, but it's just so hard to believe it because it felt so good. We must call sin, sin. Call it wicked. Uh, Secondly, he remained faithful to his master. Joseph remained faithful to his earthly master and most importantly, his heavenly master. Do you see verse 9? No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld me nothing uh, from me except you because you're his wife. How then can I do such a thing and sin against God? Two masters, you see. I can't do this to my master. He he knew it would hurt his master. He knew the hurt that it would cause. See, when the minister I just mentioned said it's hard, so hard to believe it was wrong because it felt so good, his his friend said to him, look at the pain you've caused to your wife and to her husband. Think of the agony you've brought upon your children and her children. Consider the way your actions have left the church distraught. The impressive thing about Joseph is that he thought about all that before he made a mess of his life. That's the way to do it. And he said in verse 9, I can't do this to Potiphar. But most importantly in all this, he remained faithful to his heavenly master. Verse 9, he calls it a wicked thing against God. And that is the key reason why Joseph stood against this temptation. If you remember nothing else, remember this. For Joseph, God was the most important person in his life. How can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? You see, in putting God first, Joseph had one overmastering desire and passion. His passion and love for God. One overmastering desire and passion that put all other passions in their place. See, knowing God reorders the loves of the heart, doesn't it? third thing he did was he distanced himself from sin. Verse 10, he refused to go to bed with her, notice, or even be with her. See, Joseph avoided all the situations where he might be left alone with her on his own. 
If you are finding yourself attracted to someone who is not your wife, someone who you should not be attracted to, or your husband, call it sin and don't be alone with her or him. If you've got a problem with internet porn, call it what it is. It is lust. It's the sort of thing that dirty old men get up to. Call it that. Call it what it is and then get a program to limit your access to certain sites or ask people to act as accountability partners where they get a record of your internet activity. I act as an accountability partner for two friends. And every month I get this thing come through that tells me what sites they've been on. Do that. Sort it out. Joseph called sin, sin. He remained faithful to his master. He distanced himself from the situation and having done all those things, finally he flees. He runs away, verse 12. See it there? She called him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me, but he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. It is not a sign of weakness to run away. It takes a strong man to flee temptation. Now you see, all of this was about testing Joseph's faith and demonstrating that this was a man who can be trusted. Because can you imagine the sort of power he was going to have and the sort of influence he was going to have and the sort of women that he was possibly able to have once he was the second most powerful man in Egypt, which he would become. But if he was to do the right thing now, if he was to overcome sin now, he would be more able to overcome sin in the future. The result of overcoming sin was hardship and suffering. And you see that in verses 16 to 20 where he gets thrown in jail. And once he was in jail, as we close, we come to the third temptation and it's very brief, the temptation to despair. See, we're full circle now. Joseph had done everything right and everything had gone wrong. And when that happens, it is so easy to despair And that's why we must realise that righteous living will bring suffering and suffering does not mean that God has abandoned us. That actually is the pattern of the Christian life. Now clearly my time has gone. As we conclude, note this. We're told here that the Lord was with Joseph. In Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, we know God intended it for good. And so as you think of the ways you have suffered for the gospel, consider this. If Joseph had not gone into prison, he'd have never met Pharaoh's chief cupbearer. If he'd never met the chief cupbearer, he'd have never become the prince of Egypt. If he'd never become the prince of Egypt, he'd have never saved his family and thousands of others too. We have a marvellous perspective on Joseph's life that we don't have on our own. But this is written for our learning, for our encouragement, so that when we are tempted to despair in life, when we've lived a right life and it's ended in suffering for us, we're to know God is with us. And we're to know that our standing against sin will help us to live for God in the future. And in those times we are actually to look not to Joseph but to the ultimate Joseph, the one who we're told was tempted in every way, as we are, yet without sin the one who did nothing wrong, who was completely innocent and yet was wrongly accused and suffered at the hands of sinful men, the one who was despised and rejected, the one who suffered more than Joseph ever did, but the one whom God raised to life for the salvation of many.
Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the Joseph story. Uh, We thank you that as we look at Joseph, we see a man who, even though he did the right thing, ended up suffering for it. But that's not a surprise to us because we look at your son, the one who never did anything wrong and suffered for it. And so as we are called to the same way of life, we pray this will be an encouragement for us to stand and to realise that as we stand firm, even suffering for the sake of the gospel, that it will help us to become the people we should become, to overcome sin and to live for you and you alone. And we pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.